point. It was about 12 when I realised I wanted to be a chef. But, you know, music was there. But, like, career-wise, cooking um, was what I wanted to do. And this school had an advanced... Um, uh, sort of like a course where you could do certificate one and two while you're in high school and they had a commercial kitchen and a restaurant in this school and it was far beyond my mother's means at the time but she I went to a public school for the beginning of my high school years and she saved and saved and then sent me to this school so I could do that and so you know you'd have like the retirement houses around the suburbs come in for their pretend restaurant experience and a bunch of high school kids would get to cook you know and you'd run a service um, and I think that was really sort of what kicked it off for me, but also the brattiness in the way I cook in terms of I knew the stuff wasn't relevant. The food was so old fashioned, you know, and it's just that's I think where I realized food was it, but I didn't want to do it like that. I didn't want to make those old school dishes, the 80s, the 70s classics. That was not my vibe. You know, I knew there was more for me than that, but that was definitely what started me like that love of services and pushing and that, you know, that, that was the industry I needed to be in. Hi there, veggie mates. Welcome back or welcome to the show if this is your first time tuning in. This is the Veg Talk podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Davey, and today our incredible game-changing guest is Shannon Martinez, head chef and author at Smith & Daughters in Fitzroy, also known as Vegan Heaven in Melbourne, Australia. As most of you know, Anna and I have been on the road since November 2018 We've taken the podcast with us and met some absolutely brilliant people who are crushing it in the vegan and plant-based world. Today, I'm recording this intro from Ubud on the island of Bali in Indonesia. We've been over here for a few days now and absolutely loving it so far. I hope to bring you some more podcast episodes from the island and look forward to sending them live in the not-too-distant future. This episode is no different to the others. We are speaking with Shannon today. She is someone who has dedicated over a decade of her life to making vegan food insanely delicious and more importantly, food that everyone is going to rave about. She is succeeding in a massive way. Together with her business partner, Mo, they've opened Smith & Daughters, a second store, Smith & Deli, released two cookbooks, and she's been featured on one of Australia's most popular TV shows, My Kitchen Rules, as the celebrity chef. The first location, Smith & Daughters, which offers dinner throughout the week and brunch on weekends, was nominated as the best purely vegan restaurant in the world and third best on a list of vegan-friendly restaurants. This was a recent vote from over 1.5 million Big 7 travel readers. The list of accolades is long and I could go on. However, I think there is an important topic we vegans need to discuss before this episode begins. Shannon herself is not vegan. This might shock some of you as she is the owner and head chef of an insanely popular vegan restaurant in one of the world's most popular vegan-friendly cities. I think this is a great time to be discussing the topic of inclusion within the vegan movement as we have seen a few high-profile YouTube personalities quit eating vegan quite recently. Each of them have received some serious hate from vegans around the globe the keyboard warrior type people sending really horrible messages online. We need to remember that veganism is based on compassion for all beings and that slinging hate online is certainly not going to persuade any meat eater to join the movement, afraid of what might possibly come their way if they slip up somewhere on their own journey. As humans, we are going to be all making vastly different choices based on our own realities. 
So if someone else's diet does not align with your own, maybe it is best to unfollow that person and let go rather than leave a comment that will ultimately be detrimental to the very movement that we're all trying to support. We're all human at the end of the day. We all feel emotion and are all in need of some support. I know it can be disappointing to see people with such huge reach leave veganism, but don't forget that if it were your mum or your dad who was eating 80 or 90% plant-based, you'd be praising them and encouraging them to continue. I think 99 non-perfect vegans are going to be much more helpful for the movement than one perfect vegan. But we need to support the 99 along the way, include them, so that one day we do have more vegan chefs, vegan environmentalists and vegan activists helping this world become more compassionate toward all beings. In this episode, you're going to hear Shannon's story and how dedicated she is to making vegan food bloody amazing. I left the conversation knowing that she is fighting for vegans and veganism through her work and there, there are a few people in the restaurant industry around the world doing as much for the movement as she is. Even better, I left the restaurant after dinner on a Friday night and I can tell you the food was mind-blowing and we took a bunch of non-vegan people with us who agreed. Thanks for hanging in there. This was a longer than usual introduction but a topic I wanted to address and one we should continue to discuss. I hope you all enjoy the conversation and I'll see you all on the other side. Cool. We're here today in Fitzroy, Brunswick Street, Melbourne, Australia with world-renowned chef Shannon Martinez. Correct. Look at you getting it right. Did you tell him that? (laughs) (laughs) So it's really cool to be here. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Happy to be in this very cool space of yours. Yeah, thank you. At Smith and Daughters. Um, So yeah, welcome. Awesome. Thanks for uh, hitting me up. Yeah, nah, it's cool now with Instagram. It is, it makes life easier, doesn't it? Oh, I'd like to talk to her. Yeah, exactly. As long as I check those message request folders. Yeah, exactly. um, That's the hard part. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. So, um, I'd love to hear a little bit about your upbringing. I know there's some Spanish influence Mm -hmm. in your family. Yeah. um, And what it was like living in Australia. Sure. So, um, my father came from Spain uh, to, I think they actually landed in Darwin uh, when he was 16. And eventually everyone in that community got moved down to Melbourne and everyone got located to Preston, that area at the time. It was almost like um, a bit of an orphanage, actually. Like they were all sort of put into one big building, all the families, and they sort of all had to spend a few months there. And then everyone kind of got sent off to certain towns or whatever across Australia. Um, And yeah, they landed in Preston. And weirdly enough, my mum, who's Australian, very much Australian, was... um, from like a suburb away from that, which they didn't meet obviously for ages, but they grew up pretty much in the same area. Uh, so the Australian side of my family, I could honestly say had no impact on me whatsoever in terms of food, which is fair enough when you think about food from Australia in 1950s, 60s. Right, what, you know? what did we have? It was probably mashed potatoes and, mashed and I think meat. frog in the pond was like probably <laughs> yeah. the most common dessert, that and pavlova, do you know? <laughs> So um, definitely the Spanish side was what had the biggest influence on me food-wise. My dad um, is a really good cook. My uncle's a chef. My grandmother was epic. Do you know, like none of them, she was never a chef, but you'd be hard-pressed to find a woman that could cook better than her, that's for sure. And so just sitting at the dinner table with her and, you know, like old school Euros, like she would literally cook sitting 
at the dinner table, you, you know, cutting with a shitty knife and uh, nothing fancy, but just the food that she would put out was huge. And so, so much of her um, cooking influenced the opening of Smith and Daughters and the style that we did. Because, you know, when we opened, we were very Latin and Spanish based and it was just what I knew really. So luckily... Mum hooked up with a Spanish man and uh, we got some good flavour in the family. <laughs> yeah, you would have been struggling. As you say, it's funny, like the frog in the pond thing you just said. Yeah, I mean, I loved it when I was little, believe me. Some jelly yeah. cream and a chocolate frog, but... It takes me back, like walking into an old pub. And yeah, like a Zagami's hotel, play yeah. some Kino and have a frog <laughs> in the pond. <laughs> Sounds you very know, familiar. Yeah, that yeah. probably will make sense to hardly anybody that yeah. listens to this, but that, yeah. that's like a pretty integral part of growing up in Australia. I think if you're a kid of the 80s, you yeah. know, a frog I'm in the 90s, pond. the 90s, but it was still hanging around. Right, yeah. 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 It was yeah, always pre-made sure. in the fridge and, you know, sometimes the chocolate frog would have turned white because it had been in there for so long. <laughs> True, yeah, so true. Totally. Yeah, that's funny. So yeah, you couldn't open a restaurant based on that, that's for sure. No, not not now. I think <laughs> not now. you wouldn't have too many bums in seats. Nah, my girls over at the deli though made me a vegan uh, frog in the pond for my birthday cake because I knew how much I actually liked it. I have a big soft spot for it. Um, so they made me a vegan version, which is the <laughs> first time I've ever had one of those. So that was pretty good. <laughs> that's gold. Yeah. So I suppose having that dynamic, I mean, key in terms of experiencing different flavours. Mm-hmm. Um, and having that as a, a normal part of your upbringing. Yeah. At what point did food really start to, you know, become a, not a focus, but like an interest of yours? Yeah. I, I mean, I was always in the kitchen. Yeah. Always. Um, and so it was always obvious that that was kind of like a direction. Well, that's where my passion was. Even before I wanted to, to cook, I always wanted to be around the food, and especially in European families. It's like, the kitchen is just like the kitchen is like the hub, you know, of the family, and so everyone's always there. Everyone's in and out. There's usually that little team that never moved from the kitchen, and usually the women, you know, especially in like these old Spanish families. Um, but that's where all the good stuff was, and you know, you get the best snacks when dinner's being made, and all that sort of thing, you know. And so um, I think, especially like at Christmas time, we'd go and see both sides of the family, and we'd always make sure we'd go to the Spanish one first. Because the food would be so good at the Spanish family's Christmas time, you know, and then you go to the Aussie one and it would be typical. They'd be playing cricket in the backyard, crappy potato salad. You know, so I don't even, I can't even really remember what we ate. Like that's, we, made, we made a point, even my mum, like we'd make a point of going to the Spanish side first to fill up and then we'd move on. <laughs> Coleslaw. Potato salad. And you, I'm yeah. pretty sure they didn't make it, you yeah. know, and, and like an average Pavlova, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's all really important. A lot of those things have become dishes that we mm. serve at the deli, but we've obviously improved them because, yeah. you know, you can't erase your uh, culinary background. Right. So, But you can improve on it, that's for sure. Yeah, I'm sure people here are always keen to try it like a vegan version of something they might have had in Usually. their childhood. Yeah, and that, that was one yeah. of the main roles for the deli. You know, when we opened it up, we put a call out to people um, of what were the things that you, you miss the most. And growing up, what did you love that mm. you can't have anymore since going vegan? And so many of those things were things that I didn't even grow up with because my dad did a lot of the cooking growing up. Things like tuna bakes. Mm. I didn't even know what that was. Do you know, I had to ask some friends of mine and they told me. But things like that, really classic sort of Women's Weekly kind of recipes. Um, and that's what people were craving. It was the things mm. their mum made them when they were kids, like in primary yeah. school and stuff like that. So it's yeah, definitely I there. I don't think I've ever had a vegan pavlova. No? No. We'll You've been to away to for too deli. long, bud. Yeah, I yeah. think so. Yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll have to I'll get to the I'll sort you deli. out. <laughs> cool. So 
with um, you know moving into into school and all that is I know you've got a bit of a music background as mm-hmm. well. Uh, did music start to also become this you know big interest and um, ended up being a, a career of yours? Yeah, well, I mean, I started playing violin when I was four, mm-hmm. so music music definitely was probably there before food in terms of my interaction, mm-hmm. like my physical interaction with it. Um, played violin for over 20 years and was in orchestras and uh, symphony orchestras and was in bands since I was old enough, you know, like I was in a, a band that we got named the Q High Rock and Roll Band. <laughs> uh, and I mean, in my mind, it was like, if I can play the violin, then I can pretty much play anything, right? Because the violin is like a tedious instrument to have yep. to learn. Uh, so I picked up a bass guitar and pretty much my band was just uh, Cranberries and Smashing Pumpkins cover band for a while. <laughs> but we're talking like early 90s at this point. So. Um, and, and then it sort of moved on from there and bands and bands and bands afterwards. And um, so it was always music and food. And then my mother, through high school, my parents got separated and we sort of downgraded to a much more humble lifestyle. And my mum saved up for years because there was a school in Melbourne that had this incredible hospitality program. And at this point, it was about 12 when I realised I wanted to be a chef but you know music was there but like career-wise mm-hmm. cooking um, was what I wanted to do and this school had an advanced um, uh, sort of like a course we could do certificate one and two while you're in high school and they had a commercial kitchen and a restaurant in this school and it was far beyond my mother's means at the time but she I went to a public school for the beginning of my high school years and she saved and saved and then sent me to this school so I could do that and so you know you'd have like the retirement houses around the suburbs come in for their pretend restaurant experience and a bunch of high school kids would get to cook you know and you'd run a service Um, and I think that was really sort of what kicked it off for me but also the brattiness in the way I cook in terms of I knew the stuff wasn't relevant the food was so old-fashioned you know and it's just that's I think where I realized food was it but I didn't want to do it like that Right. I didn't want to make those old school dishes, the 80s, the 70s classics. That was not my vibe. You know, I knew there was more for me than that. But that was definitely what started me, like that love of services and pushing and that, that you know, that, that was the industry I needed to be in. So even, so even at a young age, you're looking at the curriculum just going, you know, this is, this is boring music. the hell out of me. Yeah, the, the, In totally. terms of the food. In food? Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I'd never even eaten those dishes before. Yeah, true. Yeah. Might have been, it's, I mean, there's, of course... You, you need to learn the classics and foundations of any career, but the fact that the focus was on that and there was nothing, there was nothing um, modern or relevant to the food that we eat today, it just didn't make sense to me, do you know. Mm. And and I'm not saying that you, you know you shouldn't learn the basics. Of course, you need to learn the basics, but at the same time, moving forward is just as important. So from there, knowing that you want to take it a you know a step further, mm. you want to get more creative. What were the next steps for you in in making that dream kind of happen? So I started working for free at a hotel, uh, the the soft hotel in the city. It was a big big hotel and it was for the banquets kitchen. So when I was about 15, uh, I used to go after school and it was about a kitchen brigade of about 40, 45 people. There was two women. I was one of them at 15 years old. You can imagine back then it was pretty hardcore. And mum used to pick me up afterwards. So I would go to high school during the day, cook for free at night time, just because I just wanted to be in, in it. You know, I just wanted to be around it and the pressure of that. And a lot of the time, you know, that sort of pressure can crush a lot of people. But like, I honestly, that's what I live for. That kind of intensity is, makes your days go fast, you know. Um, so I think 
at that point that, that was really it was so obvious to me that's what I wanted to do but I was never really influenced by um, the, the big old French chefs do you know that style of cooking like I loved food but that's not what it was about for me really and so um, I did get kind of bratty in that way do you know and I ended up leaving an apprenticeship because I just I probably at the time I thought I was better than this do you know and which is stupid when you look back on it um, but I just knew that wasn't the focus and if I kept doing that I would have ended up hating it so um, my cooking travels kind of ended up I met my who is now my ex-husband and uh, he was a professional skateboarder and so I ended up traveling at a super young age like almost out of high school around the world and we would sort of base ourselves a lot in the states and things and I'd get to go on these tours with these skateboarding teams and basically it became like this unofficial chef for the teams and you're talking a bunch of like trash bag teenage boys that don't really eat anyway so I pretty much got a business credit card and just I had a free free run and I used to be able to go to all these places Spain whatever and just go to the markets and explore and cook with people's parents or and that was when I was like okay this is this is better like what I've learned by just traveling around cooking with people's families just hanging out in markets and talking to the people from those local villages and towns and countries that was like what I gained from those experiences far surpassed making brandy snap baskets and uh, prawn cocktails at college. So how old were you when the the traveling started to come in? Uh, I'd probably say 20. So 20, so about 2000 so is when I started traveling. 2000, I mean, we're, we're talking, at, you know, 2000, I would have been in primary school. Mm-hmm. So it's definitely before the time of where where now we see so many people being able to kind of, you know, travel with work yeah. or, or live wherever they would like yeah. and work off the internet for sure oh before yeah it's before this that. is not yeah. so the accessibility to travel i don't think our minds were kind of in that place or for the majority mm. and, and not the way chefs do now that's for sure i mean tra- yeah. travel, tra- chefs travel everywhere now you know you last year my, my job took me to so many countries but that wasn't so much a thing back then and i think obviously social media has probably got a huge part to play in that i mean instagram wasn't a thing I mean, we only got the internet like five years before I, three right. years before I finished school. Like, yeah. you know, so that didn't even exist. Yeah. I think uh, I was still like IRC in chat rooms at that point, you know, like it was just yeah. old. So putting in like, pro- actually having to program your computer mm. to chat with somebody. So in, in, uh, Instagram and social media has definitely made it easier for us to get our food out there, just especially for this restaurant. Um, the exposure purely just through social media is huge like you can live without it anymore and people like yourself being able to contact me where normally we wouldn't even meet no you know i think it's it's really important it's like a love-hate thing i hate having to rely on it but like at the same time if you can if you can use it predominantly in the in the in the best way possible it's Mm -hmm. it's hugely beneficial totally if you get caught in a rabbit hole every day of the week for hours and, and it hours takes and hours, your life away it, from you then yeah uh, then it's a bit of trouble yeah yeah exactly so yeah. really trying to not do that for sure yeah for sure so being a young girl out in the world it sounds amazing you've mm. got a lot of freedom you've got a business credit card you're mm. you know talking to people from different countries um different cuisines um and you know different ingredients i'm sure yeah. as, you, as you're traveling mm-hmm. what did your your parents think of your your new kind of lifestyle change um I, i'm sure they were happy about it i mean it's pretty it was pretty wild at the same time i guess you know i'm, I'm, I'm traveling the world with a bunch of 
20-year-old boys, um, you know, they have far too much money on their hands and have skateboarding as a profession. So, you know, it's pretty loose. But, I, you know, I, it, it all equaled to where I am now, you know, and I wouldn't have changed it. Like, if I could go back now and finish my apprenticeship instead of doing what I was doing, there is no way, no way I'd do it because it, I wouldn't be the chef I am today, I think, and I wouldn't be as loose with the way I think, which probably would have led to me not doing vegan food mm. because I don't really cook with rules like a lot of other chefs would because there's been a certain ideal that's been drilled into them or they've had mentors that have sort of created the people that they are today, good or bad, you know. I never had that. I didn't have a chef that sort of took me under their wing and I didn't learn their style, which has benefits to it as well for sure that I probably missed out on. But I think having that sort of looseness in the way that I did my job did, made me not afraid to jump into vegan food because I didn't have any preconceived notion of like, you know, you know that sort of jock mentality that a lot of the chefs would have about vegan food. They make fun of it and like chefs don't think vegan right. food is real food. And if they get a docket coming in that says vegan, they're like, Ugh. yep. I, d- I didn't have that because food's food. It's a preconceived uh, mentality on that style of food. It's just drilled into you at that point because yeah, it's an old-fashioned really way of thinking. You're thinking for yourself, are you? No, at that point, if I don't think so. No. Do you know, I mean, of course, you develop your own ideals, but I think a lot of it is kind of subconsciously. Has to be this. Yeah, totally. So you're not really developing your own opinions as much. I mean, that, mm. that doesn't go for everyone, of course. But I think having that freedom with what I had and just, just that loose style of learning really gave me a position where I was just open to taking on anything. Cool. Yeah. So at that point when you're traveling in the States, um, are you still playing music at all? Yeah, um, not at the very beginning. I mean, I was still in bands the whole time. Um, but my more of the focus um, in America came when uh, I got the opportunity for my band to play on the Vans Warped Tour. So that was 2006. And we got to play, I think, about 13 shows. So we started from Texas and went all the way up to Seattle. And that was pretty insane. Um, and it was a, that was actually, that tour was a turning point where I decided I was going to become a chef as my profession um, because obviously music is even harder industry to make it in than food is uh, but um, the days for the warp tour uh, you'd play you'd play for about 45 minutes and then the rest of the day you would basically be stuck in a venue for the rest of the day and I don't do well sitting down and doing nothing so I would get bored and so then I decided to make friends with the catering team and I would just tell them that I was a chef and like hey I'll work for free just let me in the kitchen because this is driving me crazy like you know not being able to cook for a month like when I don't cook for a few days I seriously feel like a junkie do you know like my hands are shaky I need to just hold a knife and cut something do you know yeah. like my family hate it like when I go up to mum's for Christmas they hate like they, they almost they ban me from cooking because they want me to relax but it, it's the opposite for me do you know if, if I can't cook something I, I really start to get quite anxious so that's what was happening on this tour and so I sort of gave away my time and my mum was talking to me um towards the end of the tour and I was telling her about it and she said, you know, what's the first thing you think of when you um, wake up and what's the last thing you think about when you go to bed? She goes, is it music or food? And I said, food. And she goes, well, there's your answer. Like, you want to decide what you're doing. The fact that music is your answer, uh, food is your answer, that's, that's where you should be focusing on. And I did. So, you know, and I would love to still be playing music right now. I would love to have a band. But unfortunately, like with our schedules and stuff in restaurants, Gigs are on Friday nights, Saturday nights. So, you know, that, that's when we're heaving the most. And so one day I'll get back to it 
because you know you've always got that little itch there to play and because i've been playing music all my life like it's always in the background but food was just number one focus so and i'm glad i'm glad i took that as well because it was the right move i like a i like a logic yeah you yeah know, it, it made sense right it's that yeah. simple gives you a clear understanding yeah. of really where you you want to go totally penny drops right what happens after so then I came back to Melbourne and then really sort of started focusing on that. And then I took, um, well, I was working in a pub at the time in the bar mm-hmm. and the head chef went to the bank and never came back. Uh, I didn't, obviously the bank was uh, not a true story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it was a Friday night when we were fully booked and they were in the shit hard. Um, so I decided to tell them that I was a chef and I hadn't told them I was at the time because... I didn't want to be put in the kitchen, you know, and there's um, a lot more need for chefs than there are bartenders. Mm-hmm. So I knew the minute they knew I was, you know, then they, they would throw me in the kitchen. That would be the end of me bartending. And I wanted a break. You know, I, I've always, I'm, I do bar, I do all that sort of stuff. So I love just being in this realm in general. Mm-hmm. But I told them that I could. So I took over the kitchen that night for them just to get them out of the weeds pretty much. And then, of course, never came out of it. And that was it. And so I took over that kitchen Pretty young too, do you know, she had definitely not enough experience to be running a kitchen at all, but you learn pretty quickly mm. when you have to. And that was the place, so that was East Brunswick Club, um, and that was also a live music venue, and that was a place where I'd started my first vegan menu, uh, and that was probably 2008. 2008. 2008, 2007, yep. maybe. Um, and I remember the one vegan, and really, I... I didn't know much about vegan food at all. I didn't even consider it as a thing. Vegetarian, sure, like we all knew about vegetarian food. But, you know, like peanut allergy was the only allergy that really existed back then. Like gluten-free wasn't really a thing. Vegetarian was a thing, but vegan, not so much, you know. I remember the vegetarian option at this pub was a piece of tofu that he put flour on and put in the deep fryer. It made it like a palmer, right? But with real cheese. So if you wanted a vegan, it just didn't have cheese on it. So it was just like red sauce. Oh, it's so fucking disgusting. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it with sounds the, terrible. It's so bad. <laughs> you know, and the tofu, like the flour wasn't right. And so it would just suck up all the oil. And it was done in the same deep fryer as the chicken schnitzels. And I was like, so, so gross. So I just took it off completely. You know, I'd just rather not have this on at all. But then slowly, slowly, I started getting asked for it. And especially because the, the place that... Um, the, the, the bands that were playing at that pub it was bands um, it was kind of like a bit of a punk venue I mm-hmm. guess um, so younger crowd um, and in an area where a lot of younger people were living too and so the word vegan and request for vegan food started coming up more and more to a point where it started getting annoying because it was happening so much and I wasn't really prepared for it that I used to have to keep coming up with things on the spot so I decided to actually focus on it and, and create a small menu just to make my life easier because, you know, I kept getting asked for it. And when that happened is when I came, um, I developed the vegan Palmer, which was obviously like a riff off what old mate did before. But um, I didn't understand in my mind why a vegan would want to eat any differently to a non-vegan because you, we all grew up, I mean, not many people grew up vegan, you know, most of them. So you grew up with eating the same food that I did. So surely you want the same things that I do. Like I didn't right. like just because you're vegan doesn't mean you just want to eat lentils, right? In my mind, I'm like surely. So I made like a vegan chicken parma. And looking back on it now, it's really gross. But back then, it was like you know compared to like how we've developed the, the food at the restaurant now. Back then, there was nothing like it. 
especially the vegan restaurants were mostly Asian restaurants. So the mock meats were all, though, you know, and still in a lot of cities, it's still the same way. So Quite easy for them too. I feel like when you go to the Asian Thai, yeah. uh, Thai, Indian Chinese, uh, Chinese Japanese, it's quite easy to Just shift little the tweaks. menu. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, when you think about mock meats and things, that, that's where it's from. Taiwan, China, like the base for those mock meats and, you know, that, that background in, in why those mock meats exist, it all comes from those countries. Mm. So it was easy, but there wasn't really a lot of Western style food being done, especially not pub food, fish and chips, all mm. that, just the basic stuff, like nothing mind-blowing. Yeah, but it, didn't, it wasn't a thing. Non-existent. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. So... Yeah, if you were vegan, really, you either had some sort of Gopal's, you know, um, curry, pay-as-you-feel yep. type of joint or, or one of the Chinese restaurants mm -hmm. with over, overly processed mock meats and stuff, which was what I was doing at the point because yep. I, I went and explored Footscray, you know, which is an area yep. that um, is very heavily Thai, Chinese-based. So all the stores there had these freezers full of the weirdest shit. Mm -hmm. Vegan lobster. I'd never seen like, I never, it blew my mind. Like, never seen it before. So I just basically went down there and bought one of everything mm. and just started playing around with stuff and just started figuring out how I could make the normal menu the, a vegan menu. And that's what we did. We ended up having an identical menu um, at one point. And so it was just basically meat, vegan, but read the same. Very cool. Yeah, and it was awesome. And the vegan menu ended up taking off and was more popular than the meat menu. And we had like Palmer Mondays, you know. It was a sort of pub where we had Palmers of the world, you know, like it was mm. pretty bad, like... Mm. Nacho palm. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, so we've all got to start somewhere, do you know? <laughs> for sure, for sure. Um, so, uh, and then on Mondays, we had the Palmer Mondays, and then that just went so ballistic that we were doing over 250, 300 like vegan palmers on a Monday. And that was sort of like that, that light going off to me of like, there are so many people here not being catered for. Why isn't anyone doing this, do you know? So uh, that was literally the reason why I did it. It's like no one's making delicious food for these people who are making amazing decisions yeah. to be ethical. Do you know, all the, no one's cooking for them. That's why I'm going to cook for them. And that's sort of basically what started my mission in vegan food. It seems, because like I was so far from that scene at that time, I would have been finishing up high school. Uh -huh. It seems crazy to me to hear that there were 300 people on a Monday wanting vegan In palmas. Brunswick. In Brunswick, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? I think what you just said there with like a, a bit of a punk scene, mm -hmm. From what I've learned from some people in New York City, mm -hmm. uh, punks are kind of synonymous with, you know, more straight edge. Totally. Yeah, veganism, it was quite a big straight vegetarianism. edge scene then. Uh -huh. So it kind of makes sense to me that those people were the ones beginning to demand the food. Totally. And I think they were definitely the beginnings of making the vegan scene more mainstream. Yep. Those kids were coming in and they kind of, you know, they started... And eventually social media started coming out at that point. You know, people were posting about it. Bloggers started happening to all that sort of stuff. The change in the way restaurants run uh, through social media. That was the same time that I started doing that vegan food. So I just sort of exploded. Uh, but then I quickly just realised how much it needed to be improved on. Like, sure, I, I, that's where we started. But it wasn't good enough, you know. And, um, and that whole saying of good enough for vegan really pisses me off. You know, really pisses me off. And I think not being vegan too, just knowing, especially when people are trying to replicate things, knowing that someone's calling something something and it's nothing like it's original. Like, I don't like it when they do that. Like, don't call it a croissant if it's just a bread dough in the shape of a croissant. Like, because then that, it lowers the level of vegan food. Because it gives people an excuse to take the piss out of it. 
Do you know? And I don't like that at all. Like the perspective. Yeah. yeah I yeah. don't like it. Like it, it, this food shouldn't be made fun of. So if you can't make it exactly the same as what you're trying to recreate, then just don't do it. Because vegan food gets enough shit as it is. Mm. You don't want to give them any leverage. So make it just as good. So you can be like, you don't, there's no need to eat the real version. This is exactly the same as the real version. So why would you eat something with animal products in it if you don't have to? Got it. Yeah, I saw a photo of um, like a pork belly that you oh, yeah. created. That was crazy. And I mean, mm. when I was scrolling through, honestly, I thought that was the real, the real deal. Thing. Yeah. Like I thought that was the real I thing. I lose a lot of followers when I post things like that. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Yeah. yeah. That's why I have to usually put warnings It's crazy. It's even, I, I feel the same way. Like I think we went to a, a cafe in St. Kilda mm-hmm. the other day, posted something and I had a couple of messages like, that doesn't look vegan. Yeah. Like, you host a vegan podcast. Totally. How dare you? Like, you know, I was yep. like, no, sorry, I didn't say specifically that it was, but... Assuming it, that it's a vegan page, you would think... Yeah. Yeah. It is. So, yeah, definitely feel you there. Now, how long were you in the pub before, you know, you decided that you needed a change of scenery? Yeah. Well, I think uh, maybe it was about two years. Meanwhile, I was still sort of in and out of the country too, but... Um, the, p- the same people that worked in the pub, everyone, uh, one of the guy, the guy who was running it, the, the bar manager, took over the Gasometer Hotel, which was the next step for my food. Um, so a whole bunch of us, the main crew from the East Brunswick Club, all moved over with him to the Gasometer. And that was really where the food started to develop. And I didn't rely on going down to Footscray and rifling through the freezers to try and find some random mock meat product to turn into something, you know. That's when I really started developing how to make it properly from scratch not relying on bought things and that's really the turning point in in where the food went um, and more leading towards what it is today Uh, and again another live music venue a huge one actually and same crowd so we really kind of worked together that whole music scene I guess and maybe that's obviously why I was in there because I still had my connection with the two do you know it was food and it was music and it was booze right my whole life those three things do you know that's what I've always worked within so um that really started developing there. And the same thing happened. I did meat and vegan. Mm-hmm. Smith and Daughters is really the first main focus. I mean, I did a little thing before that. But um, it was still testing waters out, you know. And, and again, it was 50-50, I think. You know, maybe, maybe more so vegan still. Uh, and the menu was huge. And when I try and think about it now, I, I introduced American barbecue into the gasometer. And this was before people were doing barbecue, but we were doing vegan pulled pork and using smokers and everything and using this has been the, the great thing about having more of a classic background in cooking they're not when you think about vegan chefs there's not really a lot of vegan chefs there's a lot of vegans that cook but a lot of them don't have a classic background right so they don't understand certain te- they've never learned certain techniques especially if they're techniques that don't revolve around vegan food like if they are traditionally meat based techniques if you've been vegan since you've been cooking, you're not going to learn those things. So this is one of, the be- one of the best things about how I do it is that I can adapt classic technique to vegan cooking. Yeah, it's an interesting kind of area because now that you bring that up, I think it's, it's clear that you know, a lot of the vegan restaurants that have popped up mm-hmm. have been the start of someone who is vegan mm-hmm. going, okay, there needs to be more restaurants. Yeah. There needs to be more options. Not necessarily having the training. No. Knowing, you know, textures, flavors, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But still putting food out there for people to, you know, have that option. Yeah. 
then there's probably the people that are business minded, mm-hmm. don't have any cooking background, want to open a restaurant, get a chef to come in yep. and let them run with mm-hmm. it. And, and there's going to be people like yourself mm. who have had classic training. Um, I'm sure there's some that have had classic training that have become vegan. Yeah. Some that are, have the classic training and don't switch to veganism, yep. but still want to go down that route. Mm-hmm. So did you enjoy, I suppose, the creativity of it all? Because back then, I mean, if you were the, you know, one of the, you know, few places in the city yeah. um, that's offering a full menu, it must have been cool to have that much room for experimentation. That's exactly why I did it. Yeah. Because, um, you know, I reckon you've got two types of chefs and one's the arrogant pig yep. and one's the one that truly wants to like explore every option and loves to learn and is open to new techniques and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, some people are like the old way is the only way, full stop, you know, anything else is not valid. Yep. Um, it's why we've had a lot of trouble getting chefs to actually work within the company, like qualified chefs, because so many people, you've spent 15 years of your life learning your craft and your trade. It takes a special kind of chef to want to almost put all that aside for a second and just completely open up again and learn a whole new like variety of skills and techniques. And um, it's, it has been really tricky, you know, to a point where I've had to basically put through so many of my dishes through apprenticeships to learn because I cannot find chefs that want to make vegan food. But in the last year, I've seen a massive shift in that. So for the first time ever, I've got an incredible brigade of qualified, amazing chefs in my kitchen, but it's the first time ever since we've opened. And I've basically been just working with kids that can cook, you know, and they've done amazing. Like they've been my soldiers, but like there's never been an interest from chefs because it's always, they've always take the piss out of it, you know? So it's just starting to change. So you can see the shift in the way that um, this industry is going now is that now chefs are actually, they realize they need to learn this shit. That's crazy from like 2007, 2008. To now. To now. The shift, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's great in terms of vegan food. Like you're going to have a lot more chefs taking vegan food a lot more seriously now. It's not going to be an afterthought for them anymore. Do you think it helps with people like uh, Gordon Ramsay, for example, mm-hmm. you know, publicly posting, you know, I'm going to try vegan in January? Yeah, well, do you it's think a good that, sales pitch. Yeah, do you think that? Because, you know, he is a big beacon for mm-hmm. people that are in the industry that want to uh, become a chef. Yeah. Um, you know, he's he's out there. He's he's the face of um But when you think chef, yeah, most people really he's, he's got to be face with that. top 3. Totally. I, I would think. For sure. Um so seeing him that at tells least you, give it a go. It says a lot, huh? Cuz you know, if you told him 5 years ago he'd do that, he would have punched you in the face. Exactly. Yeah. So it shows whether he's doing for whatever reason he's doing it. I really don't also think it matters why a chef. I don't care if, if you're doing it for business reasons. If you're doing it for ethical reasons, I don't really give a shit what your reasons are. The fact that you're putting items on the menu that are vegan, that's all that should matter. Like, I, I don't care if you're only doing it because you want to make money. Like, if you're a chef, like, and there is an audience there now. If you don't put a vegan option on your menu, you're limiting that, like, crazy, like your customer base. So even if that's your only reason for doing it, I would rather a chef put on four vegan items because they want to get the customers in than not have them on at all, you know. So uh, things like Gordon Ramsay doing that is... is if anything, just showing you that if Gordon Ramsay thinks that there's something to it, then it's there and people can't ignore it anymore, you know? Yeah, I think, as you say, four years ago, he probably was the epitome of that chef. I'm sure he did some positive. He said a lot of negative shit about vegans. I think so. Yeah. So, you know, but it also shows that people are open to change mm-hmm. um, and he is a business person. Totally. So that might have been the reason. Who knows? Who knows? But does yeah. it matter? Like, it doesn't matter. Do you want to get into that a little bit? 
about you know your journey into um, the Smith and Daughters. Uh-huh. So starting Smith and Daughters, yeah, and it becoming yeah, extremely popular. Sure, um, you know globally. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting in America, seeing you know your books becoming seriously popular mm, it's pretty um, pretty amazing huh? you know y- your face uh as a almost a pinup for veganism mm. right yeah <laughs> yeah ironically yeah and then you dig a little yeah. deeper and it's like oh hang, hang on. on a second this is weird this chef isn't even a <laughs> vegan <laughs> yeah so yeah 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 um yeah i'd love to hear a little bit about yeah just how smith and daughters came, to, came be. to be yeah for um, sure um and then maybe some of the um the surrounding commentary yeah. we could oh, call yeah, it the fun stuff yeah um, well, Smith and Daughters came about actually because I was at the gasometer at the time and uh, Mo, my business partner, um, was running, uh, about to run a thing called the People's Market, um, which is in Collingwood, just the next suburb over from the restaurant. And her being vegan, she wanted to have a vegan option at this market. And so basically the market was this really incredible hub for artists and food and um, musicians and things. And we had shipping containers that were turned into restaurants. And so it was a rotating thing. And once a month, a new restaurant, I think there was five of us, five different kitchens. And each month it would rotate. Um, and big kitchens, like big restaurants from around Melbourne, not just like little startups, like it's very established things like Movita and things like that. They were in there. Um, so Mo wanted to make sure there was a vegan option, obviously, um, just being vegan, she needed to have it in there. And came to me for it. And then I, was the one that came in there but I was the only one that didn't rotate so I was the one that stayed within the market the whole time that was my way of testing I wasn't sure I always knew I wanted to open a restaurant before I even met Mo it was always the goal obviously but I wasn't sure whether I would be able to sustain a fully vegan restaurant and whether I would have to go veg vegan because I just wasn't sure if the market was there for and because I'd never tested a purely vegan business model it was always meat and vegan I wasn't quite sure so this was a really great way to test that without the overheads because I was just in a little shitty shipping container and the response was absolutely crazy do you know and we were the busiest food truck in there by far half an hour queues from the minute we opened to the minute we shut every single day do you know and it was just it opened my eyes to like okay so this is definitely something that can sustain itself and we don't have to rely on being veg and vegan and also the idea for me of um being able to come into a restaurant as a vegan um, if it's vegetarian and vegan, you still have the same shit that you have if you go into a normal restaurant. You still have to ask if there's dairy. You still have to ask if... I, all I thought about was how easy it is for me to walk into a restaurant because I don't have to ask anything. I have no allergies. I'm not vegan, so I don't have to ask anything. I can literally just point at something and eat it. But for a vegan, it must be so annoying having to always be that guy who has to ask a thousand questions. You can't just go out and enjoy a meal. So it was sort of like the point there on right now. I'm just going to go full vegan and just give them that opportunity to walk into a space with complete freedom and just not have to for once be that guy you know and you're in a table of 10 and everyone's ordered and then you have to spend five minutes with the waiter going through everything like that must suck like yeah i mean it happened today <laughs> how annoying yeah we you went can't... to went to lunch and the guy actually he uh yeah he, he kind of he was a bit frustrated mm. and he's like well i'm not going to actually help you i'm going to get I'm going to get the, the vegan. He said, I'm going to get the vegan. I, I'm, I'm going to go and get the vegan. It's like the leper you. in the back. Yeah. <laughs> See then, what I mean? And if you don't yeah. get the right waiter, he will get pissy with you. And, and, and can you guarantee that he's not annoyed because he hates vegans and he's going to give you dairy instead just to be a dick? Do you know? It's, um, I think just to relieve that, 
I could just imagine how good that must feel. You know, like you must spend vegans would spend so much time reading labels constantly. With supermarket trips, like everything, just takes so much longer to have that freedom to come in and know that everything is 100% perfect for how you eat. That that would be good. So that was sort of like the point where I'm like, all right, we're going to focus on vegan. Mm-hmm. And then Mo and I met there. Um, and decided to do it together. She had a background in things that I didn't have, so it was kind of like this perfect combination, you know, like I had one side of the business under control, she had the other. So we opened this space. Um, Took us a while, actually. I went and in the meantime, when we decided we wanted to do it together, I moved from the People's Market to a place called Sweetwater, which has now become almost an institution in its own right. After that closed, it became Leonard's and Leonardo's and Rambler, which is a hatted restaurant. And so there's this little rad team over in South Yarra. And there was definitely no vegan food over in South Yarra at the time. Do you know, everything was Northside, you know, Fitzroy, everything. But um, between all of us, we sort of um, created this really amazing Australian, which is funny from what we are talking about before, <laughs> um, an Australian, not themed, because that sounds cheesy, but like the food was Aussie. It was in a tin shed, basically. Do you know, it was, so it was, it was, it sounds a lot cheesier than it was. Trust me, it was fucking cool sounds cool yeah it was really i was cool. actually just thinking before i was like i've like i feel like i've missed out on this era like, you did you, you moved know? out at the wrong time i don't babe. know I, I, I was e- i was either here and not a vegan yeah. or i was oh, i was away. gone but yeah. i just feel it's like a maybe a muso feeling like they missed out on the 80s or the 70s totally. if they weren't you, yeah you kind of yeah it was definitely about six years or yeah. 10 years that great that gap there where yeah. things just went from zero to 100 yeah for, for sure. sure and fitzroy was kind of like the og this area. is the spot yeah definitely and still is yeah definitely I mean, it'll always definitely. will be i yeah. think you 100%. know this is the hub for it uh but south yarra didn't have any anything as well so again i went back to doing meat and vegan vegan menu did as well as the meat menu um menu uh and then by trolling the internet for restaurants this whole time mo was working in television production I was doing cooking still. I found the space that Smith and Daughters is in today and it was a restaurant I used to work at so long ago and I always loved the building. I mean, there's nothing more iconic than Bluestone from Melbourne, I think, in terms of buildings. Yeah. It's like a local stone. That's what we have here. I mean, it's black, you know, and that suits me fine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so we we didn't get any investors. Um, Most restaurants have a lot of backing. Mo and I did it all ourselves with the money we had in the bank. You know, we spent a lot of time uh, sanding off IKEA logos on stools and things because we really, I mean, it's just the two of us. We didn't have much money, but we knew we wanted to do it ourselves. All that shitty paint work, you know, that's New Year's Eve, me here at two in the morning with the blinds shut so all the drunk people outside couldn't see us in here just painting away, painting away and getting it done, you know, and... um, Later on, I found out that's not normal and most restaurants do have a lot of backers behind them, but we've done this on our own. So that was really awesome, you know, to think that we, we owe no one the success that we've had. You know, we've done this ourselves and the hours we've put in and the money we've put in, it's all... We haven't relied on anyone but ourselves. So that's a pretty um, big achievement for me to, to be able to do that. You know, that makes me really happy. No, I can... Yeah, just you explaining that. I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me. I recently heard a guy that released his own book, the you know number one on Amazon, huge book. Mm-hmm. No, il- no publisher. No publisher. And yeah. they asked him pretty much the same question, yeah. and he gave a very similar answer. Yeah. I didn't want to sell my story. Yeah. This is your story. Yeah, totally. Right here. I think you, you know. can feel it. Yeah. Uh, in the restaurant, you know, it's a little bit rougher than the average restaurant, but it's because we did it ourselves. Yep. You know, and um, you can tell the restaurants when you walk in that are 
from big groups and they're very polished and they, they just lacks a little bit of something like this. I, I think you can feel the, 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 um, the work that went into it and it's a little bit more personal. I, I completely agree. Mm. Um, yeah, it's taken me back to a little meeting we had in Boston um, with a, a restaurant that had backing. Mm-hmm. And it, you're right, it, it has that very polished yeah, feel. Yeah, it's not bad, but it's no, just different. it's very Instagrammable totally. in a different it's way. It's perfect. This is cool in a completely in all different way. Exactly. Yeah. You and you've got it? the famous logo, I love that, oh, yeah. up the back there. That's, yeah. God, that, yeah, that logo is definitely... Um, cemented itself around the world that's for sure 100% I was going to get it tattooed on me at one point there are a lot of people with yeah, it yeah some guy posted a photo on, and he's got tattooed in his armpit <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> and you know I, I, we've got a lot of uh, photos sent to us of people getting it I've got it Mo and I went and got it when we first opened the restaurant mm-hmm. I got it somewhere where it's not so visible because I found it a little bit um, maybe uh, like she's got it on her hand yep. me not being vegan I was like maybe I shouldn't just be showing that everywhere yep, yep. it might be a bit rude <laughs> yeah I still think like everything that you've detailed so far including the tattoo mm-hmm. that in itself the work the vision the dedication to this place mm-hmm. and to helping people get the option without having to go through the crap of yep. like saying yep sub this sub that get rid of that yeah you know, yeah. that to me says enough about your integrity about helping the vegan cause. Mm. So having opened um, opened doors, how long was it before people started to question you personally? I mean, it, it's always sort of happened, but I guess it happened in a big way with Smith & Daughters because the platform for the restaurant was a lot larger and it got a lot more mainstream media attention. Um, so it's always been there for sure. Um, a lot of people won't like a lot of the comments are why should I trust you to make my food when you're not vegan? So like, well, what? I'm not sure what sort of agenda you think I have and how it's going to help myself or the business to be secretly feeding you beef. Like I, I'm not I'm not sure where the, the mindset goes. Yeah, and that's the thing. I didn't have to choose to. I, I didn't have to do vegan food. I chose to do it because I wanted to create a space for people to come. My job, you know, we're, I'm a tradesperson. You know, I'm not a rock star. I'm not anything. We're tradespeople. I'm the same as an electrician, a plumber. I'm a chef. Our job is to serve people, and to create a space that people can come to and enjoy themselves. You know, that's basically what it comes down to. Chefs forget that a lot of the time, and they let their ego get in the way of it. And um. It just really pissed me off that, that vegans weren't given the opportunity. And so I could have very easily not have opened a vegan restaurant and it would have been a lot easier in terms of cooking. But I chose to do it because I wanted there to be an option for people. So I always found it really interesting when I started getting a lot of shit for it. Um, people not trusting me when I did things like um, the My Kitchen Rules TV show. Uh, the episode wasn't vegan, right? Yep. Um, what people aren't understanding is things like My Kitchen Rules are a gateway, is a gateway for me to then be able to start something that is ours, right? Never, like, I can't even think of a vegan chef who's been on mainstream cooking TV before, like a show like MasterChef. It'd be the first, right? So the fact that they've even in- invited a vegan chef to come onto the show is a huge step forward. 
Um, sure, it wasn't a vegan challenge. Sure, that would have been ideal. And of course, I said a lot more about veganism in the episode than they showed. Right, and that's completely out of your and control. And that's got nothing to do with me. Yeah, and people kept complaining that you should have been doing this, you should have been doing that. This is no control. We have no control anyone, over how they edit things. Exactly. Anyone that's been on TV knows that when they see how? the end product yeah. of what they were on is a snippet. Totally. I mean, yeah. I was filming for 16 hours and the show goes for an hour. Yeah. So the amount of stuff that was going on there where I was suggesting things that obviously don't make it to... Yeah, I just so not understanding that this is one small step in order for us and our brand and what we do to get known on a larger scale for then for the opportunity for us to then possibly get our own show. So this was just the first offer that I had had to be on mainstream television for the most watched television show in the country. That's a huge step, right? And so then from that, who knows what comes from that now? Talks about our own show, which will be a vegan show which now all of a sudden mainstream media is interested in. But that wouldn't have happened beforehand. And it also wouldn't have happened if we hadn't opened this restaurant the way that we had opened it. And it's really weird, and I know it's stupid, but meat eaters almost feel like they can trust coming to the restaurant and eating a vegan meal because I'm not vegan and they know that. They're like, well, if the chef's not vegan, then it's probably all right. Which is still trying to penetrate those old school, that old school mentality of vegan food is shitty. It's not mm-hmm. steak and veg and, you know... But because they see me as not this, I think a lot of people think of vegans differently to what they actually are. Do you know they think of these hippie, exactly. you know, militant, which yep. they still are. They're, of course, they're still there. But that's not, that's not how we represent this restaurant. I've tried to make this restaurant look as little, as, a, like, as less of a vegan restaurant as possible. Like unless you saw that cross on the wall, you wouldn't know you were in a vegan restaurant. The that's menu true. doesn't read like one. I'm not here to preach veganism. I'm here to preach delicious food that happens to be vegan. And... Um, all these things that I do um, are just gateways into getting us into a bigger picture. Do you know, I'll, I'm working towards our own show that's going to be on mainstream television that will introduce people to vegan cooking. But it's like slowly, slowly. And the fact that they've even chosen to have me on there in the first place is huge. For and, sure. And, you know, and if anyone understands how the media works, it's, it's not that easy. I can't just say to Channel 7, I only want to do a, a vegan episode because they would have just said, fuck off. I mean, with the... Yeah, they probably 99.99% would have said that. Yeah. Um, it's not I their mean, focus. If you just look, yeah, look at MasterChef or My Kitchen Rules, wherever it is in the world, mm-hmm. you're not seeing any of that yet. No. So I think the people that they're, you know, beaming this show, they're beaming this show into their living rooms, they're yeah. sitting there probably with some kind of device in their hand. Of course. Who's Shannon Martinez? Mm-hmm. Who is she? All right. Google her. Why we're watching. Boom. Smith and Daughters. Melbourne. Brunswick Street. Vegan restaurant. Oh, Oh, the food doesn't look shit. Yeah. Maybe we'll check it out. And that's what happened. You know, the amount of followers that we got from that was directly, like, you could see it. The minute that episode stopped airing, the followers just went sky to skyrocketed, right? Guarantee you they're not vegan audiences. Like, the vegans already know we're here. They're already following us. These would have been your... Average family sitting down watching uh, My Kitchen Rules who all of a sudden now are aware of a business in Melbourne that does vegan food that looks exactly the same as the food that they just ate for dinner. So maybe it isn't that weird and maybe they'll give it a go. So it's that sort of bigger picture that these people that give me a real hard time about doing what I do are completely missing. Um, you know, your, your little vegan restaurant down the road is not having that same effect on a, on a large scale as we are so i'm trying to it's a bigger picture that i'm working towards and just doing vegan food in our restaurant sure that's great but it's not going to change as much as what i want Definitely. our brand to change and the makeup of your your customers 
what percentage if you had to just mm. we reckon it's 70 percent at least meat eaters yeah like non-vegans so and that's i think that's key like this is not a small space this is no, a, it's, i don't know it's a big building we it's do about five and a half thousand um customers a month at the restaurant and we do about the same at the deli so you're thinking same minimum of ten thousand people a month eating vegan food and 70% they, of that are not vegan. Where they could have gone and chosen something Anything. Different. Any other restaurant around here, in the one next door, you know, anywhere. But they've chosen to come here and eat um, animal-free products. For sure. And that's a massive impact. You know, if you can... Unfortunately, still, the vegan, um, vegan scene is small in, in, in regards to the people that eat meat. If, if we can adjust the way meat eaters eat, because they're not all going to go vegan overnight, I truly feel like until... I mean... Humans are so fucking selfish in general. Until we're forced to be vegan, everyone's not going to go vegan, do you know? Um, but until then, if I can show them that three days a week where they would normally be eating meat, they don't have to, that impact is massive, do you know? If I can get that that demographic to realise that you don't need to eat meat breakfast, lunch and dinner every day and come and have this bagel with the vegan smoked salmon that we make out of a watermelon and tell me that's not as delicious and why would you not just eat this? And then they do. But you've got to prove it to them first, you know, like they're... I can't just be giving them a lentil curry for breakfast and telling them that that's just as good as their egg and bacon sandwich, you know. For sure, so for sure. It's, um, that, that's the direction that we're going, you know, really making food familiar for people because um, the vegans are already on the right track. It's the meat eaters we've got to sort of start getting their heads around things, you know. And right, and I think that's something that, you know, I've highlighted this with previous guests before and it's something that we forget about. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're there, like if you're already eating vegan mm-hmm. yourself mm-hmm. it's it's awesome but it's also key to not block out the rest of the world the majority of the, the majority, world too which is exactly. what people forget it's, it's the majority it's, it's still 90 plus people 90 plus percent of mm-hmm. people still out there mm-hmm. you know not eating a fully vegan diet totally or, you know not even a vegetarian mm-hmm. diet so yeah to give that opportunity for people to come in and try something different that's right and do you know, 10k minimum people a, a month. Yeah, that's that's, so that's seven thousand people not on plant-based diets eating plant-based. Exactly, and that's huge. So I think that's really cool. What do you, what do you say to the people that are you know maybe questioning the pairing of the ethics of veganism mm-hmm. and the fact that you know you yourself are not? Would it be a similar answer? Look, I'm getting bums on seats and. You yeah, know. I mean, I think people also need to remember that I'm a chef first. I, I'm not a, a vegan advocate first. I'm a chef first. Food is my life and my passion and all I think about. Vegan food is the food style I've decided to focus on. In terms of veganism, I, I do focus more on the environmental side of things. Um, we um, have cut back so much on the things that we import, especially some of the mock meat products that we used to use. I have a big problem. I, we just got a sample in today, actually. This vegan smoked salmon, and it's an American company, but the product's made in Taiwan. So made in Taiwan, sent to America, packaged in America, then flown out to Australia. That doesn't sit well with me at all. And if we're talking about vegan ethics, that is a huge, huge side of it to me. And the environmental impact is massive in terms of where my direction is in veganism. Obviously, the animal side of things is also a huge issue. But to me, I focus more on the environmental impact of food in general. Um, that, that there's no need to be importing, exporting things like that, especially in a country like Australia. I mean, we have everything here. So we've really cut back on that. So that's a huge focus for me. But even just with the restaurant 
since having the restaurant, my diet is 80% plant-based now. Do you know, and when I eat meat, it's only when I'm out generally, if there's something incredible that I need to try purely because it's, my, it's what I do, food is everything. But I don't eat meat at home anymore. I don't cook meat at home. It's changed the way I eat. Do I, th- I don't think I'll ever be vegan. Do you know, I don't just because of my job, but 80% of the time I am. Um, and that's hugely to do with working here now and also my focus on where products are coming from and, and educating yourself, you know. Pe- you can't be blinded anymore. Whether you want to pretend it doesn't happen or not, it's, it's in your face all the time, do you know. And then the media, people talking about it, celebrities are on it now, do you know, like it's everywhere. You didn't really see the word vegan in the newspaper. No. Five years ago, Definitely unless not. it was being taken the piss out of, kind <coughs> of. Yep. Now, every, every day there's something about it. Someone, Beyonce started a new vegan app, blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, like someone's done something. Um, it's so in your face now. You can't pretend it's not a thing. So, um, I like your perspective there on uh, the, the choices we still have as, as vegans. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah, okay, there's people throwing shade at you uh, for not being a vegan, but I don't think the world is perfect. No. So to, to throw shit at someone that's working extremely hard uh, at this craft... Uh, but it also is able to bring new perspectives. That's why I love talking to, you know, a wide range of people. Mm-hmm. I come away personally, and mm-hmm. I hope the listeners at home too, come home with a new perspective. Mm. I'm certainly going to be thinking about now where these products are made, shipped, and where I'm buying them. Because it's, it's just as important. Oh, it is. It, 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 veganism is not just one exactly. focus. Exactly. It's know? not the one thing. Yeah. And I, you know, this is probably going to piss off a lot of people that are listening. But to me, I'm not so sure whether if I had, say, chickens in my backyard, is eating an egg from a chicken in my backyard more ethical than eating something that has gone through over the entire planet twice on a ship, do you know, to come to me to sell as a vegan smoked salmon bagel. I'm not sure if that's more ethical than the other, do you know? Um, I mean, it's a fantastic question. I think we've got to remain open. We do. Open to debate and open to discussion. Nothing's going to grow if you're just forcing one ideal down someone's throat, you know? And and what I've also not understood is why the people that are giving me such a hard time for doing what I'm doing are targeting me as opposed to something, say, like McDonald's. Right. Really, like if we're talking about the people that are fucking up the future for food, I'm not on that list. Do you know what I mean? I'm one of the people that are helping move things forward, getting it out there, getting the vegan message out there. I'm not there killing cows. No. Do you no. know? So it's really interesting that vegans are actually targeting someone who is actually doing something positive for the vegan movement and for vegan food. Yeah, I think we can leave it there. I mean, it's just hard to kind of... It just doesn't put, make sense. Yeah, it's not logical to no. me. Um, you, you mentioned watermelon mm-hmm. as a smoked salmon mm-hmm. option. What are some of your favorite ingredients, you know, over the journey that you've started to work with uh, and maybe present in a completely different way that we're not used to? Um, so, yeah, the watermelon, we, um, we cooked that in the oven for about six hours really, really slowly to basically get rid of all the liquid from it because the, the watermelon texture, once it's sort of... Um, dried out a little bit is very similar to smoked salmon and then we marinate it with um all different types of seaweeds and liquid smokes and things like that and so that's worked really well we did a vegan blood sausage here for a really long time as well i was actually out for dinner with mo and we were at an argentinian restaurant and i ordered morcilla which has been one of my favorite things my whole life growing up um with the spanish family is blood sausage right 
and I had it in front of me and I just said to her, I'm like, I wish you could try this because it is so damn good. So the minute I got back to Melbourne, I started working on vegan blood sausage and we had it on the menu. And at first people were like really grossed out by it, I guess, because even meat eaters are kind of grossed out by blood sausage. But like if you've grown up with it, you just know it is the business, do you know? So we nailed it and we made, um, basically made vegan blood um, which was using, when you cook down um, beetroot enough, the iron that comes through in it is really similar to the taste of blood um, and mixed with wine. And so we basically make this blood syrup, I guess, that we use to bind. And it, it, the recipe is almost the same as a real one. And that's the thing with a lot of our food. Our cooking is the same as if, if I'm making beef bourguignon, a real one, and then I make the vegan one. The processes are exactly the same. I'm, I've just, through the years, learned how to, to make adjustments. But we're not making a whole new dish. I think with a lot of vegan books, when I first got some older ones, when I first started out, they were so overly complicated. Do you know? And a lot of soaking and drying and pureeing and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, you know, you want to make something, you've got to plan it two days ahead of time. It's like, if I want to eat, I want to eat right now. Do you know? Like a mum coming home and making spag bowl for their family. Like, you don't want to plan two days ahead. And a lot of those books were like that, you know, and, and vegan cooking doesn't need to be like that. And I think um, it was probably scaring people off a little bit, you know, like a dehydrator. I, I've never owned a dehydrator, like, no way. So I wanted food to be as basic as possible for people to be able to make. Um, but the blood sausage thing really sort of blew people's minds. That was my favourite because it messed with people the most. What was it? The, what was the base of the, the sausage? So same fillers. So really, that's what I was getting at, sorry, um, is that the recipe was really similar to a traditional blood sausage recipe. Um, so still using barley or rice, same fillers, same spices, you know. Um, and like I've even done a vegan haggis, you know. It's just, <laughs> it's really keeping them as, as close as possible and then learning the things that aren't vegan and what you're going to use to sub it out. So things like um, vegetable shortening for fats instead of lard. So, you know, so we did... Um, uh, pastillas and all sorts of things and wherever you do like a lard pastry th there are alternatives you just have to get your head around it and once you understand how it works and if you know how they're made normally you're just s subbing it out you know and so it's, it's just really not that hard <laughs> what are some of the challenges you've had um, you know you've obviously had a ton of successes you got two cookbooks out mm. just quickly one the new one is smith and delicious yep and the first one is just the smith and deli smith and daughters smith yeah and, smith and yep. daughters yeah the second um, book's my favourite, I think. Okay. The, the, I mean, the restaurant one is great and it's beautiful, but the second one is like your everyday. I, I really wanted to create a vegan version of the women's, the women's weekly cookbooks. Do you know, like your basics? So, um, and almost so you have like that Bible, so you can learn your basics and then play with it. And I'm a big fan, and probably also, again, because of my food background, of breaking rules with food. So my whole book is basically talking about this is generally how I do it, but doesn't mean you have to do it like that. And if you don't like coriander, then don't put it in. Or if you don't have coriander in your fridge, don't go out and buy it. Just go use something else. Use whatever you got. It's, food shouldn't be tricky. I really want people to start playing around with stuff, um, taking the stigma away from it being hard, you know. And for mm. the mums that have, you know, the annoying vegan daughter that they don't know how to cook for, <laughs> you know, like, oh, she's so annoying. I always have to make something different for her. Yeah. Well, now there's a book where you can make the thing that you normally would have made for the whole family, but now you can all be eating vegan together and you're not going to be able to tell the difference. So I want it to be that, your basics in the kitchen, your pestos, your mayonnaise, all that stuff. Just really strip it back. The restaurant book was a little bit more detailed, a little bit trickier. So I think it was time to sort of move backwards, which is what the deli really is. It's just that everyday place. Very cool. Yeah. So... 
you know, they're the successes in the book published on paper. Mm-hmm. We can buy them and, and start utilizing them in our own lives. Mm-hmm. What are some of your personal challenges in the kitchen? Staffing's always the hardest thing with kitchens. The food's the easy part, you know, keeping staff happy and motivated and educated is probably the hardest thing. And like I said, only until the last year have I really had like this incredibly solid team. But um, I mean, not to say I haven't had amazing people in the past, but in the last year or so, it's really come together. So staffing really is just, this is a hard industry, vegan or not. The restaurant industry is a really hard game and the margins are lower than any other industry, you know, and it's just, you have to love it. And if you don't, you know, working 16 hour days for nothing basically is, uh, if you don't love it, then you would be crazy to do it. Yeah, I think all it takes is, you know, just walking through Melbourne. Mm-hmm. We've been walking through, we were in uh, Northcote yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've been through Collingwood, Fitzroy, um, even down in the suburbs where I'm from. <coughs> There are so many cafes, restaurants, bars, pubs. It's huge. That, you know, it's it's a very hard fought industry. Mm-hmm. You, you really fight for your place, um, you know, in in the scene. Totally. Yeah. For so sure. Can, te- can totally understand. Yeah, that. it's it's heavy. So yeah, if 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 you if you're not if it's not your life, you you definitely wouldn't choose it. <laughs> no, I can de- I can definitely see that. It's not for everyone. No. I've, I've dabbled in hospitality when I was younger. Yeah. I'd rock up hungover every Saturday. Yeah, perfect. And it would be a long black in the morning, and that'd keep me going. Hopefully for the rest of the if day. If you're lucky. If yeah. I'm lucky. So yeah, I never coped extremely uh well with it because i i refuse to give up my uh just your my social life exactly totally so, yeah, yeah. And if you can't do the two exactly then yeah. it becomes it becomes difficult if That's you can't it. do it so you're, you're extremely busy yourself i mean we've just spoken about my kitchen rules that was really recently um i think another thing we should talk about is the the national gallery of victoria mm-hmm. um and what kind of opportunity that presented but you're yeah. extremely busy so um yeah, maybe we'll go into that first. Well, how did that opportunity pop up? And then how did you decide to to go with the, the meal the selection? Yes. Um, they <coughs> actually approached me. So Darren Sylvester was the artist and it was his first, I think, major um, exhibition, especially at, all, at the National Gallery anyway. And his art style was um, more pop culture reference, um, just it's just very different to what I'd sort of seen in the past. And then I was looking through his work and the work that really stood out to me was his use of old McDonald's wrappers from the States turned into like bedding, like linen for beds. So he'd got the print and then turned it into fabric and then made beds out of it. And it was just so striking. Do you know, just that whole um, consumerism, um, advertising, the way that just absorbs into your subconscious and... And so that's what I decided to focus on. So when they asked me to do it, I thought it would be amazing to show something like McDonald's that's such a heavily processed product. Um, when they talk about what I do as not being real food, you know, mock meats and things, it's like, so you're going to call McDonald's real food but not what I do real food? So I'm like, well, really? So making this whole McDonald's thing, so we did a Happy Meal. <laughs> um, so we started off when they walked in with a little box of chicken nuggets and all the wrapping, all the packaging was all white. So a white box with nuggets in there. Um, and then the main course was a Happy Meal with toy and all, you know, and it was in a white box. <laughs> Cheeseburger, fries, and then they, we did, you know, we obviously, I spruced some things up and did um, a smoked 
vanilla Coke to go with it. And then dessert was sort of running a play on um, the rumours that happened worldwide about McDonald's and what they actually put in their food, which never ended up being true, of course. But people always used to say that the thick shakes were made of lard. Like right, semi- I remember that remember one that? floating around. Made of yeah. pig fat. Yeah. Yeah, and that the apple pies were actually made of um, potatoes or okay. choco. Or, so I actually made the apple pies out of kohlrabi. Mm-hmm. instead of apple um, and made it t- they tasted exactly the same as apple because of the way I cooked them and then using silk and tofu and things blended the thick shake to such a th- point where it literally felt like you were sucking down pig fat but it was delicious <laughs> <laughs> so it was all you know it was like sort of a a throwback to that whole yeah. c- how crazy things can get out of control but then when I went out to talk to people about it um, who were sitting there the diners uh, and that was you know artists from Australia and or a whole bunch of different people from media and they were all talking about how it tasted exactly the same as a real thing. And again, it was just so my question of, so then why wouldn't you just eat this? Mm-hmm. If exactly, yeah. McDonald's is not doing you any favors anyway, so if you want that stuff, why wouldn't you just eat it without the animal products? And no, no one could answer why they, no one could answer. So I, I, I kind of hope that these sort of little events throw little bits of... Little seeds. Just little seeds out there, do you know? So maybe these bigger companies will see this and be like, well... Shit, maybe it's worth a shot. Maybe yeah. we'll try it. Totally. You know, and whether it's, it happens or not. But even, even the diners, that's 30 people now that actually couldn't answer me. Yeah, right. They're stumped. That in itself is enough, you know. Yeah. That's 30 meat eaters that don't, don't know why they wouldn't. Or maybe now they went home and said, actually, maybe I don't want to eat this tonight because I just right. had this thing. That's what it's all about, I think. I think it's those little seeds. You don't have to be the hero. No, no, go, no. Go I don't want to be responsible yeah, for this. Plant the seeds and let them get there themselves. They're going to get there themselves. Totally. It's a bit of Heston about it. Heston Blumenthal having the, um, <laughs> you know, the kohlrabi instead of the apple and an apple pie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, using it's yeah, just different. Fun in, too. Yeah, you're just playing around. Because I could yeah. have done just a sit down dinner on a plate and you know fine dining vibes, but it's kind of boring. Yep. This is way more fun, especially when you bring people back to like me saying to you the lard and the thick shakes. Like you remember that from yeah. when you were little. Like everyone at that table did. Doesn't matter if they're this um, super bougie yeah. fashion woman <laughs> yeah. or just like you're boging down the road. Like we yeah. all know the story behind the lard and the thick shakes. Yeah. So it sort of gives everyone a little connection and sort of puts everyone on the same level. But, you know, with all my collabs that I do in restaurants, I, I've never done one with a vegan restaurant and I probably never will just because I want my scope to get out there to a broader audience. So all my collabs are generally with restaurants that aren't vegan or have no vegan options. So not only... Are their diners exposed to vegan food? But the owners of those restaurants are exposed to it and they can see how popular it is and maybe that will make them put on options on their restaurants. Super important. You know, super important. Really Just important. Because, you know, it, it numbers talk, money talks. Yep. And, if we, I could, you know, we did one over the road. Um, it's a fried chicken shop, right? That's what they sell, fried chicken. We got, I think it was over 750 customers in that day and they didn't have a vegan option before that and now they do. Mm. So just because he had no idea how big it was, they don't. They, if, if vegan food is not your world and, and fried right. chicken's your world, why would you know the demand? So him watching people just flooding through the place was like shit. I had no idea. Yeah. And now and now there's options. So I, I feel like that's progressing the vegan food movement more. Yeah. No, it's it's really important, Mike. Mm. So Mm-mm. I think it's a fantastic idea. So getting I suppose tying all that up, you know, you've got. NGV, you've got uh, My Kitchen Rules, Travel, mm-hmm. two restaurants, author of cookbooks. Cookbooks take a shitload of effort uh, to, you know, to get that all together and then, and then out to the world. Yeah. How do you balance your, your life, um, I suppose, to, 
give yourself some time to make sure that you're able to continue this work. Yeah, I'm pre- I mean, luckily for me, what I do is what I do on my days off. Yep. So that's fortunate. I don't have to force it. Do you know, like, even on my days off, I'll cook, but I love it because I don't have a timer on, you know, so I get to relax. But I'm, I've, I, I can create a balance. I don't let my job take over everything. You know, my family is really important, so I always make sure. I mean, I've been cooking now for 22 years. I've given a huge chunk of my everything to it. Um, in my early years, not being able to do Christmas with the family because they needed me to work, all the, all the typical stuff that hospital is, I've done that now. And so I've made sure, you know, if, if my family need me or if it's an event, that I'm taking that time off now. And a part of running a business and running business properly is that you can get it to a point where you can do that. And a business isn't worth anything if the owners have to be there 24-7. You know, you a good business owner can get your business to a point where it can run like clockwork, whether you're there or not, and hiring the right people that you can trust that just kill it on a day-to-day basis, which is what we have. Do you know, I'm, I think that's what makes the better business person. If, if I had to be here all the time, then what's it worth? Do you know, the place turns to shit the minute I walk out the door, it's pointless. Probably a key for, for management in general is to, uh, it's the sign of an incredibly talented manager to be able to teach other people to, to, to do, do their job. what you want them to totally. do and let it run. And trust their judgment and, and right. know that the choices that they're going to make that are affecting your business are the right ones. Um, and I think that's really important. So I've learned, I've learned that through running this business is to learn how to delegate and just put the right people in charge of it and just to trust them enough to do the right thing. Really cool. Yeah, yeah no, that's a, a really good point. Mm. Um, yeah, so, I mean, you've, you've had an amazing journey. It's, um, it's been really cool to... Uh, to, to learn about where you've come from and, and see your creative spark and, and how you've, you know, just made this place from, from the ground up. Thank you. What, what was the, I suppose, the, the impetus for then going and creating a second location? Besides madness. Yeah. <laughs> we opened it before the restaurant turned one, actually. So it was within the first year. So, I've, I mean, we figured out straight away. We tried to open for lunches when we first opened and we were so busy that we just couldn't handle it. And the building's actually heritage listed. So we can't touch it in terms of structure. Um, so the kitchen, which you just saw walking right. in, is insanely small. Yep. Uh, for the amount of covers we do. Our fridge is the size of a dining table, you know. <laughs> so we almost have to prep the whole menu every single day. We can't, um, we can't prep in advance so much, you know, so we can't really get ahead. So we opened the deli. Some of the reason for it was to help back the restaurant um, in terms of like the, the deli kitchen is 10 times bigger than the restaurant kitchen. Uh, the cool room space is massive. Uh, but what ended up happening, same as the restaurant, is the moment we opened the deli, the deli got too big for its own boots as well. Do you know? And the deli could barely keep up with the deli. So that blew that whole idea. So then we still couldn't open for lunch at the restaurant. Um, but then again, like I was saying to you before about being able to walk into a restaurant and have to be that guy that has to ask a million questions, the same went for the deli with groceries, you know, um, not having to read a label when you walk in, how refreshing. Ready meals were a huge thing that I wanted to focus on because vegans are just as lazy as meat eaters and they also can't be bothered cooking every single night and there's not really a lot of options in terms of ready meals for vegans, you know, especially not at like supermarkets and stuff. So I wanted to provide that service for people too. Just your ev- going back to like your everyday shit, you know, like a vegan shouldn't be treated any different to anyone else in terms of convenience, food, options, all that sort of stuff. So it was just, what do I have that I take for granted? Convenience, 
ease all that stuff vegans don't have that you know so i wanted to provide your carbonara sauces for people and there's the pasta to go with it yep it's vegan there's the parmesan yeah it's vegan you don't have to check it's all good that sort of space and besides that when i was little i always wanted to own a supermarket so uh, <laughs> <laughs> i always thought being like the <coughs> checkout chick with the scanny thing was like the coolest so i kind of wanted to have that <laughs> and i always just loved delis i think maybe it's a euro thing but you know delis in the mornings going to the market and they'd pass you over an olive to try like just that whole thing i've always loved so we wanted that and you know now the space again like the restaurant is too small so eventually that might turn into something else you know but i really want to start creating a space like america has whole foods and things like yep. that um we don't really have that yeah. here um i love dean and deluca so much you know that that vegan food still has a little bit of a hippie connotation to it and the deli still is a little bit too diy i really want to eventually sort of elevate that and sort of get it polished and beautiful and all those sort of things but until then it's providing just that again that convenient space for people to come in and our customers at the deli are great with it they come in every day on their way to work we we have lunch boxes for them so they come in and grab their coffee in the morning we'll give them a little donut or something to snack on and they we have pre-made lunch boxes so it's a sandwich a salad and like a donut and you get a drink and it's 15 bucks and they come in and that's done there's no you can't get that you know that ease you know you don't have to worry about it it's, especially if you're a vegan if you forget to make your lunch and you're not living in Fitzroy, you might not have lunch that day if you, you know, if you aren't near a space that you can pick something up from. So it's just that local shop thing that, that you know, we wanted to give people. Really, really cool. How do you see the, the, the vegan scene in Melbourne progressing in, say, the next, you know, five years? Uh, I, think, I think what's happening now, I've noticed the most, is non-vegan restaurants are really starting to pick up on it. And, and the best vegan food I've had in the city is all coming out of non-vegan restaurants. Even Sydney, uh, Mama Fuku, um, but the Sydney location, um, the best vegan food probably that I've had in Australia, besides my own, of course, <laughs> is definitely coming out of there. Is that's David Chang? David Chang owns Mama Fuku. Yeah. Um, yeah, and um, Paul Carmichael is the head chef at the Mama Fuku in Sydney, and it's all his restaurant, and it's Caribbean, and... It's, it's incredible. But we went there a little while ago and we got like the feed me option. Mo got the vegan one. I got the non-vegan one. And honestly, hers was head to head, if not in some points, better than what I was having. And it's those people, again, and I'm sorry, but I will, I will always say I think non-vegan chefs make better vegan chefs. And it's just because our training and our palates are different. And the thought process that's going behind it, you know. His food was so good that I, next time I go, I'll order the vegan option because it, I just, it was just outstanding. So I think that's what's happening now, the huge shift in non-vegan restaurants, things like Maha, Vudamon, all these places, full vegan degustation menus now. That never would have happened before. Totally. Yeah. What do you think will happen to the people that don't start adding at least options? Do you think it's going to... They'll be, be gone. You think so? They'll be gone. Yeah, totally. Those old pubs and... You see them dying off anyway. Do you know, slowly, slowly they're going. Go down Beach Road, all the pubs along Beach Road mm -hmm. where I'm from, down Mentone, Beaumaris. Yeah. Edgy's gone, Beaumaris Hotel's gone, Red Bluff's gone. You know, so yeah. it's, it's just changing. And I'm sure you, there might be some of it, but I really do think if you don't move forward, you'll be left behind for sure. Cool. Have you got any advice for someone that wants to get, you know, a vegan restaurant open? Mm -hmm. I think um, don't 
don't think that just because you're vegan and you can cook means you can open a vegan restaurant. It, it's, it's a really hard industry and um, just being able to put on dinner parties where your friends tell you your food is delicious is not a good enough reason to open a restaurant. If you really do want to do it, and I encourage people to do it for sure, but go and work in them first. Really put in the work. It's, um, you're not doing the vegan food movement any justice by opening and closing something in a year and producing a subpar product. We really want the new people coming into the scene to be pushing it forward, not regressing. And I think just opening a place with your standard crappy chia seed pudding and, uh, you know, your smoothie bowls and that, that's just subpar is not helping anything. Really, I think, focusing on it, developing what you do, create a style um, and make it super professional. Do you know, not everything that's vegan needs to have a sunflower next to it, you know? Like, it's think about the bigger picture and not maybe just a particular agenda in, in your form of veganism, whatever that is. Um, and just look at the bigger goals, I think, and just like how much more of an impact we can have by presenting it in a certain way. You Very know? cool. Yeah, I think it's helpful information. Mm. Um, again, the people that we end up targeting really are the non-vegan people. Totally. So you've got to have their experience in mind. That's right. Get into their shoes as best as possible mm. and understand what they might be looking for. Correct. Last question. What is your favorite dish that you yourself have created? Is it bad to say the blood sausage again? <laughs> give, give us number two then. All right. Um, well, probably the tortilla actually. So I do a, uh, the Spanish tortilla, um, the potato omelette, all vegan, and it is so close to the real thing, I can't even tell you. I'll give you the recipe. <laughs> <laughs> it's a secret one actually. I've never, there's two things I, I've never told anyone how to make, and it's a tortilla, and I do um, uh, mushrooms with a uh, PX, like a Spanish sherry, um, and that mushroom dish has been on my menu for over 10 years, and I've only just taken it off for the first time ever, which caused a lot of issues. <laughs> but it's the two things I haven't um, sort of shared because they're just too close to home. And tortilla, I grew up eating, you know, it was, it was always one in the fridge, always one on the table. Um, so when I nailed that one, I think that was really important. So I think tortilla for sure, that's like a sentimental thing that unless you know, you don't understand. <laughs> Very cool. Look, I'm, I'm stoked to have met you. Uh, this you conversation too. has been really cool. I've learned a heap, new perspective on things. I'll definitely walk away today. Um, you know, I think with a, a slightly different mentality uh, to when I came. Yeah, so thank good. you for your time. Thank you. Keep crushing it. I'll do my best. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm looking forward to, to continuing following along on your journey. Thank you. Uh, and to, to getting back here while we're in Melbourne. Yes, please do, for sure. Where can we find you? That's probably the, the most important thing for, for the listeners at home. Yeah, so um, both the restaurants, Smith & Daughters and Smith & Deli, are both on Instagram. We post heaps about what we do. And then mine, uh, Shannon underscore Martinez, is where you can see the stuff I do. And I do a lot of cooking videos on there as well and my stories. So you can watch me cooking at home where I show you sort of little tricks and things like that. I don't talk on it. It's completely music because I don't want to have to deal with it. But if you want to watch me cooking at home... I sort of show you a lot of this sort of behind the scenes development on how things work. So that's really fun. So we, um, we do our best to keep people updated on, on, on there. Beautiful. Yeah. Shannon, thank you very much. Thanks, buddy. Ta. Looking forward to getting this one live. Thank you. Cheers. See ya. Bye. Hello, guys. I hope you enjoyed today's show. This was our first guest who was not vegan. But as you can see, this does not stop her from dedicating her life to making vegan food amazing in its own right. If you are in Melbourne... 
at any point, I highly recommend checking out both Smith & Daughters and their smaller Delhi-style place, Smith & Delhi, which is just around the corner. A huge thanks to Shannon for giving up her time. She's an incredibly busy woman, and I can't thank her enough for joining us on the show. I would love to hear your feedback on this episode and any other episodes that you've listened to. If you are looking to help the show in any way, that is always very much appreciated. You can take a screen grab of your favorite episode and share on social media. Don't forget to tag VegTalk. This show also runs on reviews and ratings, so if you did enjoy today's show or any past episodes, it only takes a couple of minutes to send a review and rating on iTunes. Lastly, we do have Patreon and donations are extremely appreciated. This will help to continue the show into the future and ensure that we have incredible guests sharing their stories with you all. Next week, we'll be at Edgar's Mission Farm Sanctuary with founder Pam Ahern. I'm really looking forward to bringing you her story and our chat together. Until then, keep it plant-based, people, and I'll see you all next week.